Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Basti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Delighted to welcome one of the most successful female trainers of all time to the studio. An overdue first appearance on Luck on Sunday. A very good morning to Venetia Williamson. Lovely to see you. Good morning, Nick. I say it's overdue because you're having a wonderful season and it has been a, a career of steady winners and great success, approaching 1,500. Where's, where's the time gone? <laughs> you're making me feel old, actually. I hope oh. not. That was, certainly wasn't the intention. <laughs> And more, more that there's been an awful lot of success in a, actually a fairly short space of time when you think about it. Yes, I think most people that have been training, you spend the first half of your training career, everybody says, gosh, only that long, my word. Um, and, then, and then all these young people are coming along and you're starting to feel old. Is it, is it a very different game now to, to when you started? And as I say, it's not that long ago. It's late 90s, essentially, isn't it? That's right, yes. I'm sure it is. Um, and uh, I'm pleased that I started when I did. You know, there's a lot of new trainers coming into it now, um, with uh, you know a lot of success, there's a lot more summer summer racing, um, and uh, you know it's, it's 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 quite a different game. So do you think it's harder for people to establish themselves now than it was then, or not? I wouldn't say it's harder, but it's different. And I, and I think I think uh, you know you, some of the the trainers um, you know need to have a slightly sort of different approach from perhaps you know the, the the olden days. I mean you know there's a lot more summer racing going on, and I think that changes things a lot. But when you started, you were very much seen as a pioneer, someone with a, a modern outlook, someone who could get horses that little bit fitter. Is that is that a fair fair assessment? Do you think? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd spend a little bit of time with Martin Pipe, and of course, you know, he he changed the the whole blueprint for national hunt racing and, and training. And you know, obviously, you, you come away from there, you know, with with ideas up your sleeve, and and uh, I think he, he changed everything then. Tell me what that was like. I'm fascinated to know what it was like working for him in the in the sort of heyday. Um, I was there for one season, and um, I mean, just just being part of it. Minnie Homer won the national the year I was there. Um, you know, and there was there was a lot of lot of good people. Um, Tom Dascombe was was one of the jockeys there, and um, you know, not only did he train horses hugely successfully, you know, there's quite a few of us youngsters that were there uh, have come out and trained successfully since. And did he? Did he give a lot of advice, or did you just learn by example, or just sort of watch how he how he operated? Uh, if you had one conversation a week with him, that was one more probably than the previous week. <laughs> no, it's it's a case of you know um, being there and, and observing, and um, uh, you know. But I mean, obviously, David's you know hugely successful as a result since, and um, you know David was assistant there at the time. But without wishing to give away all the trade secrets, what essentially was it that? Martin Pipe did to change the game because he did that. He revolutionised national hunt racing. He did, and um, I, essentially, it's 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 the two words: interval training. Um, he had a short gallop. Um, it had to be short because if he carried on, you'd you'd be on the M5. Um, <laughs> and 
um, in the olden days, you know, Tim Forst and the like used to train on downs, and all, all trainers used to be, you know, in these great downland um, places, you know, um, North Yorkshire, um, Lambourne. Um, and uh, Martin started training on a, on a five furlong gallop of necessity. Um, so instead of training your horse over two miles, you're training it over five furlongs, so therefore you have to go up several times, you know, and that, that became the national hunt. Um, format thereafter for training them successfully as interval training. So what's the science behind that? Because athletes interval train, is it, is it all to do with heart rate going up and down, essentially? That's right. It's, it's, it's a case of um, just n- nudging the heart rate a little bit further after periods of, of rest, but relatively short periods of rest. And so when you started up yourself, did you know that that was the model that you were going to base getting horses fit on? Oh, of course, of course, you know, because Martin won everything. And when did you think to yourself, this is working, I'm, I'm doing this right? Was it instant? Um, my first runner was second, if I finished second, and my second runner won. So that, that, was, a, that, that was nice, that was a nice confidence booster to get, get the ball rolling. And was it easy to get horses? Was it easy to get people to, to come to you? Because it seemed that you built up a decent size string relatively quickly. Well, not really, no. Um, I think I started with about half a dozen horses. I think um, when you start training, you, you have to give the um, uh, jockey club at the time um, a list of your, your owners that are going to have horses with you. And I, I think you're supposed to have nine. And I think practically every one of the nine that I gave when I applied for my licence didn't, didn't show up. <laughs> so it was, uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a leap of faith, but, you know, we got going. But you have to be brave, don't you? To, of course. To, to take out a trainer's licence, whoever you are and however you start. Yeah, but I think that's probably much the same, you know, in all walks of life, really. You know, you, you're starting out and um, a lot of a wing and a prayer going on. So you, you had a background in, in horses, but it, it, you weren't from a, a long line of, of racehorse trainers necessarily. But it, was that what you always wanted to do? Well, not really. Um, the, but the great ambition had been I wanted to be champion amateur jockey. Um, anyway, and that all went for a ball of chalk when I broke my neck. Um, I actually rode in the Grand National. It was the race after the Grand National. Um, fell at Beaches Brook, um, carted off to hospital, and then two weeks later, my next ride, um, hurdle race at Worcester, upsides in front, um, showed how long ago it was, um, had Peter Hobbs on one side and Graham McCourt on the other side, <laughs> and, and fell and broke my neck. So that was the end of, of the riding. And at the time, I'd been assistant trainer to John Edwards. Um, so that continued, and from that point onwards, you know, obviously I was looking at the possibility of you know, being a trainer. In the way that only people in racing can, you talk about breaking your neck in quite a sort of breezy, nonchalant fashion. But it must have been extraordinarily terrifying at the time. The race before you broke your neck was when you, you fell at Beaches in the, in the National. We've got that just here, Marcolo, 200 oh, to 1. Whoops. Now. Oof. Ow. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, thank you very much, slow motion replay. Yeah, as you can see, buried head first. <laughs> Had, was, was that the start of the injury? Had an injury been triggered there, or, or was it two completely separate incidents? Uh, no, I was, um, I was knocked out there, as you can see, and um, uh, I, there, was no, there was no neck injury. Um, I was carted, carted off to hospital. Funnily enough, actually, I, I remember one thing. Um, down at the start, walking around and talking to Huel Davis, who was sort of ashen in the face. I mean, he was fairly pale complexion at the best of times, but um, I remember him asking me, um, any regrets now? (laughs) 
and, and, and I, had atta- I had my whip attached by an elastic band to my middle finger um, because I was so determined to slip the reins, otherwise you get pulled over the horse's head. I, I was thinking if I slip the reins, I'm going to drop my stick. I mean, you know, the great optimism of youth, the fact that I thought I was going to need my stick. <laughs> anyway, so, so it was still attached to my hand as I arrived at Falzachary Hospital, and I think they thought Miss Whitlash had arrived. <laughs> So, so Marcola were 200 to 100. Those were the days when you could line up on a complete no-hoper in the Grand National and that horse was genuinely a, a no-hoper. What, what, on, what on earth were you thinking as you were cantering down to the start? Uh, do you know, you're just excited about the occasion, the event and being there and partaking. And what was it like as a race to ride in then? Um, well, I didn't get very far. You know, so we just had the first five fences. I remember, um, I remember jumping the first, and, and, and as you're looking down, and you're thinking, flipping heck, that's a long way down. <laughs> and, and you automatically re- re- relax your grip on the reins to let the horse um, slip the reins through your hands. You know, and it's, it's an automatic reaction. And then you mentioned the, the fall, and I, I just want to come back to that. And I, w- I was saying it must have been absolutely terrifying. W- was there a moment where you thought, this is it, the game's up? Well, not really. I, I do remember about three strides before the fence thinking, whoops, we're meeting this a bit wrong and, and pity its beaches. And I have to say that was my last memory in, until um, being in the ambulance. And then Stratford a, a fortnight later. And was it, was it definitive that you knew that that was your career over? The weirdest thing is it was actually at Worcester. Um, I remember um, the horse... Worcester, met, sorry. Met it, met it a bit long, just clipped the top coming down, so I just was fired to the head first. And I remember rolling, and you could feel, you could see the sky, the dirt, the sky, the dirt, and then ended up coming face down onto the grass. I could feel the grass on my face, but from my neck down, it was like the rest of my body was in 100 pieces floating in the sky. It was like it didn't exist. You know, we're sitting here, you can feel your seat in the, in the chair, you can feel your, the feet on the ground. But if you can imagine... There's no existence of that. I could breathe and I could talk. Um, and uh, I remember saying, I can't feel anything, I can't move. Do you know, it never occurred to me, actually, at that point, this is what paralysis is. And, and after about five minutes, um, gradually I got the most violent pins and needles down my arms and legs and everywhere. And then that gradually failed, faded away and then I could feel everything again. But I've broken what they call the hangman's bone. It's right up the top of your head and it's, it's the peg that you're your head swivels on, it's an extension of your second vertebrae. And, um, uh, yeah, so I was in hospital for about six weeks. And in that six-week period, I'm guessing there was quite a lot of time to think about what was coming next. Mm. Did, it, did it change what you thought you were going to do or what you were going to be, and did it kind of make you sort of reappraise how you, the rest of your life was going to turn it out? Didn't, it didn't really, in that, you know, you keep thinking... Yeah, I'm going to ride again. Of course, I'm going to ride again. You know, because that was that was what it, it, the focus was, and and and, and no, nobody is going to be harsh enough to say no, Venetia, you're not. The only person that that eventually did come up to me and say it, um, was was the jockey club doctor at the time, and he said, look, come on, you know, you're you're not a professional. You don't have to ride for a living. I think you need to think twice about this. Is there? I, you don't strike me as someone who would who would take too kindly to being told what to do what to do anyway. Are there people who you're close to or who are in your life who, who you can turn to and they go, no, you do this now, and you would actually go, yeah, OK, you're right? I think a lot of people thought, you know, hey, come on, let's be sensible about this. <laughs> um, but it didn't take very long, actually, after I, after I came out of hospital. 
So what was what was between that time and the time you took up the trainer's license? You talked about your year at Martin Pipe. Did you did you go around the world and experience? No. Well, at, at the time I was working for John Edwards as assistant mm. trainer, and that that carried on for for several years. Um, uh, when when I, I left there, I spent I spent time with because I'd already been in Australia and spent time with with um, Colin and David Hayes, and I'd spent time in America, um, work riding actually out in California, um, but it was it was then of. Um, I think it was about four years or five years. I was assistant with John Edwards. Mm-hmm. Um, the time when Yahoo was second in the Gold Cup, which I see is in today's Racing Post. Um, that, that must have been a, an extraordinary day if you were on the other side, if you like. And famously, the great pressman George Enner was cheering Yahoo on from the press room balcony as everyone else was cheering Desdor because he had a big bet. But um, probably you and he and about five others cheering for Yahoo. I think, I think yeah, we were kind of outnumbered. Um, but uh, the... Cheers were to no avail, but um, no, it, was, it was a great race. It still must have been a wonderful race to be a part of. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, yes, and of course, you know, to be there when actually Desert Orchid won was, was fantastic. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Uh, Amy, great to have you back. How is Kalashnikov, the great beast? Yeah, he's in great order. Um, he was a little bit quiet post uh, Kempton. I think he had a hard enough race, but uh, no, he's bounced back. He was uh, he went over ten furlongs yesterday and ripped my arms out the whole way. So uh, he's definitely feeling well, that's for sure. And generally happy with the way things have gone since you were last with us. I know you're in a new yard now. You're expanding more flat horses as well. Yeah, it's obviously very exciting for the whole team. But uh, no, things have things have gone great, and hopefully that will continue. Um, he's obviously been our flagship, and um, it's fantastic to have him. And your father was watching your other good horse, Mercy and Prince, winning at Kempton last week from holiday in the in the West Indies. Is he back now? Have you had a chance to properly debrief him? No, he's still in, in, in the middle of the ocean somewhere um, on a boat having a fantastic time. But they always win their, their bigger races when he's away. So he uh, it's... Um, bit of a superstition of his that he stays away at this time of year. I mean, Venetia, some would say that that's the ideal place for your owners during the jump season, in the middle of, in the middle of an ocean somewhere. I think Amy's t- talking more from a, f- a family yeah. point of view, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it was great to see Mercy and Prince win last week at Kempton. Are you still thinking of running him in the Topham? Well, uh, Jack came in saying... Um, you know, have I messed his handicap mark up? Which we obviously we've gone up ten pounds. So uh, yes, was the he's short had a bit answer, of a hike, yeah. but uh, we are where we are. He'll he'll probably have one more run and then yeah, freshen up for the top one. And you've recently got engaged. Congratulations! But you were telling me last week, absolutely no plans to be doing that anytime <laughs> soon. Far too busy training racehorses. Far too busy. <laughs> no, I think uh, when Lemos asked uh, my father, the first thing he said is, "Well, yeah, you can ask her, but I don't think she's got any time to be doing anything about a wedding." <laughs> Well, at least you said yes, which is, a, which is a, definitely a step in the right direction. Let's uh, have a look back at what happened yesterday at Ascot, and evidently the, the star on show was Altior, who won at very prohibitive odds the, the Clarence House chase. Eights on, tens on, it's academic. He, he won very decisively. He did, however, Venetia, have this tendency to jump out to his left, which was significantly more marked yesterday than it had been on his, on his previous two starts. Is there anything watching on as an impartial observer that would bother you? <coughs> Well, no. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, he, he's gone and won the race really well. Some horses will do that. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll do that if the horse in front is doing it and they'll mm. follow them, which clearly was not the case here. <laughs> um, but uh, sometimes they're more comfortable. I mean, you know, you and I, you're either right-handed or you're left-handed. Mm. You know, and some horses are, are, are more comfortable in, in a certain way. But um, 
I don't think Nicky will be losing too much sleep about that. But he just naturally favours doing that. It's just the way he finishes off his races, Amy, that's so impressive as well. Absolutely, and he's so exuberant with his jumping at the same time. Um, he's just a pleasure to watch whenever, whenever he runs and um, a very exciting horse to have around in our era. I, I was musing on this watching it again last night, Lee, and I thought I, it may well be flattering, but Fox Norton's got closer to him than most other horses <laughs> yeah. have. He's actually posted quite a good comeback if you if you put any kind of literal read into that. And he's run a fantastic race on, on ground. They, they were umming and ahhing about running him on first time out. But no, he's run really well. Um, he, he wasn't a million miles behind him. Well clear of a decent horse in third who was was predictably outclassed. But no, he, he's run a fantastic race. And I think that point you made earlier on about uh, Altior... The way he finishes races is always what impresses me the most, particularly when you see him at Cheltenham and Sandown up the hill. He, he, he comes home with a, with a gusto and a strength um, that you very, very rarely see. Um, a shame that only two horses took him on, but he beat them really readily. I, I, that, that issue about jumping out, it, it was quite dramatic in the early stages. Um, and you do, you do hear horsemen talking about how I think Mick Fitzgerald has spoken about this in the past. When they suddenly start doing that, there's sometimes a reason for it. Mm. But as you say, Nicky Henderson and Nico seem not in the least bit concerned. After uh, I suppose if they're not concerned, exactly. then we shouldn't be. Well, Nicky, can, Nicky Henderson was unconcerned about it yesterday. I'd imagine he remains similarly unconcerned this morning. Morning, Nicky. Morning, Nick. How are you? Yeah, good form, thank you very much. Is Al Tior in one piece this morning? He certainly is. He looks as bright as a button. He's just been out and sort of, he's having a pick of grass at the moment. Can you ever tell that he's had a race the next day, or does he always come out bouncing pretty well? Um, he's pretty good. I think the only time, I mean, Nicky once said he. I know when we sort of went through to um, Cheltenham the year before. You know, his race before it. He said, you know, he'd had a hard race. It took him a bit of time to get over Cheltenham last year. That's why we missed Aintree and went to Sandown. But I mean, by and large, he, he just takes that all. It, yeah. He enjoys himself. He's had a nice day out. Um, everything went well, and he's, as I say, he's safely back home, which is probably this time yesterday. That's all one would have settled for. And it, we were talking about him jumping out to the left. You didn't seem remotely bothered by it yesterday. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it, sure, he did do that. Nico said, and it's quite interesting, and I'd like to go back to it. He said, special tiara taught him that last time. <laughs> it was it's just. Because he did, he was outside Special Tiara, and um, he was—he just kept taking him that way. Um, he was pretty, you, you know. He's a very competitive horse. He, he likes racing. He likes that. I was in front there. He wasn't doing anything all the way round. Um, so he was just—I'm not saying playing games, but. Um, he had to do something to amuse himself and I think you, you got to the point now where if, if, if he puts a foot in any way in the wrong place um, it's, there's a question going to be asked and um, first of all obviously Cheltenham was left handed but I don't think that's an issue it won't worry me going right handed again it's just something he did if he had another horse in front of him he wouldn't, done it. He wouldn't have done it at all uh, Can you actually enjoy watching him race now or not? Um... Again, I thought that was pretty smooth all the way yesterday. He jumped very well. Um, yes, sure, why did he go left? But as I say, Nick had just said that was down to special tiara. Thank you very much. Um, do you enjoy it? Uh, certainly not the preliminaries, no. Um, you're under the 
sort of scrutiny the whole way and everything he does now. And we're very, very lucky because we had the same situation with with um, um, Sprinter Sacra. And, you know, the, the extraordinary thing is that as soon as he had retired, we were lucky enough to walk straight into mm. another one. And you can only say you're just, you're, we're lucky boys. Nicky, I don't want to keep you too long this morning, but I do want to mention the other three winners that you had yesterday, Downtown Getaway, Mr Fisher and Before Midnight. I suppose Mr Fisher's the highest profile of that trio. What was your um, view on his performance at Haydock? Did it strengthen your confidence in him as a, as a top-class racehorse or, oh, or diminish it? I've no doubt he is. Um, I don't think he did anything wrong. He, he probably just didn't find the, the, the gear that uh, he did at Kempton. Um in that it wasn't the ground at Kempton, the ground at Haydock are two different things. Um, we, that's why we all need to keep Kempton. Um, <laughs> we keep banging that drum. Um, I, I think he did his job very well. I mean, I do think he's a high-class horse. Um, we, as we said, we actually switched. The original plan was for Angel's Breath to go for mm. this race yesterday. Um, and so we just switched them wrong because he's just not quite right at the moment. I mean, he will be perfectly right. Um, so, I, no, I think he did his job very well, and I, I, I don't know that he actually even needs to run again. Um, so, Nicky, what, what's been the issue with Angel's Breath, and when are we likely to see him? We've got the odd one that's not quite right, but, I mean, obviously we've got the odd ones that are quite yeah. right. Um, we ran five yesterday, and funny enough, I think... Um, Colonial Dreams probably ran as well. Who was second in that uh, in in the handicap at Ascot? Probably ran as good a race as the ones that won. Absolutely. Um, so you you know all all five have run seriously good races. Um, we have got the odd one that isn't quite right, and we're just having to keep an eye on them. And Angel Spread, unfortunately, very marginally, but not quite. So he stayed at home, and we as they we switched Mr. Fisher into that race, and we had a plan for. Mr. Fisher in a plan for Angel's Breath. Actually, all they're doing is just switching roles. And fastest ever 100 winners for the team at, at Seven Barrows. I'm not saying it's crept up on you, but that's a, that, that is a remarkable feat, particularly with the calibre of horses that you're running. Well, you, you, we're very lucky. I mean, we have got a little... You know, we're, we're having to be a bit careful at the moment what we run and what we don't run. Um, but no, it's good. It's because, in a funny way, with the ground the way it's been, it sort of, it only feels as if we're at half yeah. time. Yeah. I'm not going to say we've got another hundred in the locker. Oh. <laughs> um, There's a couple of trainers on my left quaking in their boots <laughs> at the thought of that, Nicky. Come on. No, but um, we, we've just got to get make sure they're all healthy and wealthy again. Um, but you know, there's a lot to come, and. There's quite a few having a little break just through January, which and then one run before March, and then there's a there's a sort of quite a lot still to appear. Well, good luck for the remainder of the season. A terrific day for you yesterday, Nicky. Thanks so much. Nick, thank you. Nicky Henderson, who <laughs> who's on half power, it seems, Lee, had four winners in a second yesterday, including the grade one, and he's had 100 winners already. Yeah, it's quite a terrifying prospect for the rest of the year, isn't it? It is, it's remarkable. Um, the strike rate he's, he's performing at um, is astonishing. Um, he keeps firing them in. Just one thing on the, on the, on the whole Altior subject, Nick, as well. I think that 
that whenever he wins a race now, we, the press, go and speak to Nicky and say, Sprinter Sacra, how does he compare with Sprinter yeah. Sacra? And we all ask, I think we forget that Sprinter Sacra, in his pomp, in that season when he won the champion chase by 19 lengths and beat Q Card on the bridle, and he just won a Ryanair chase, yes. he was probably as good, as talented a chaser as, as we've seen since Arkle. And I think to try and say that any horse is going to reach that level is, is premature. The minute, on, on BHA figures, he's still £13 below mm. Sprinter Sacra. Now, maybe that's a bit much, but I still think we, we forget very quickly. And I, I, I genuinely believe that if he, if he got to within five, six, seven pounds of Sprinter Sacra's level, he would still be one of the greats because Sprinter Sacra was more than one of the greats. Mm. Venusia, what do, you, what do you make of that? Well, I think um, they're two very different horses. I mean, they're both spectacular in their own rights. But um, Sprinter Sacco rather used to have his heart on his sleeve. You know, he'd go out there and he'd race and you knew that what was there. With Altior, you know, you kind of need to... Well, it would appear that there, there's a, a turbo button. But there might be two or three turbo buttons which, which you know, haven't even been flicked yet. The, you know, there's no bottom to him, is there? That's right, yes. You don't know where the, the petrol gauge is with him at all. You know, it's a, no, no, nobody's seen the red yet, and they probably won't. Uh, a, a lot of trainers, if you ask them about other trainers' horses, they show complete disinterest because they're only focused on their own. But surely as a, as a horse person, you, you do see animals sometimes and you just really cover them and think, oh, God, I'd give my right arm to have something <laughs> like that. Well, of course you do, and um, but it's great for the sport, you know. Um, I mean, it's fantastic that Nicky's had these two horses, one after another. Um, but it is great for the sport that, you know, we can go and see these fantastic horses, you know, and perform for us. And we think it's so easy, particularly when you've got one like that. But as you were saying, you try and keep these horses sound every time they go to the races, particularly with the ground on the livelier side this season. It's they're delicate creatures. That's right. That's right. And because and, um, and that's the next thing. And Nicky's obviously alluded to the fact that, you know, he's got probably one or two with dirty noses, as we all have. You know, certainly we've got quite a lot at the moment, which is... Um, but it, it, it comes with the territory at this time of year. Um, but uh, to, to, to be able to... I mean, the, one of the great things of um, Desert Orchid, for example, who I know, you know, there's a little feature in the, in the paper today about him. Um, but he would show up every day. Whenever there was a good race... Um, he, he would show up, he would be there, and he'd run to his best. You know, and that's a, a massive um, accolade to his soundness, his temperament, and his o overwhelming good health year on year. That's amazing in itself. And Amy, this is what you're now sort of discovering, essentially, is it, it's just as important to, to sort of keep them hale and hearty and sound as it is to, well, more important to do that than anything else, essentially. Absolutely. You know, they're athletes, and, and, and that's the biggest part of the job is, is producing them on the day healthy, sound, and as Venetia says, at this time of the year when the weather's changing so frequently, this, this is when they, you know, like children, like, like adults, you know, they, they, they pick up um, things along the way, and... And we've got to keep them in 100%. And are your hearts in your mouth more when you, when you pull a horse out at the moment the next morning because we've, we're not racing on soft ground every day? Yeah, definitely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the race courses have done a fantastic job to produce safe ground, particularly in the autumn, you know, when we were still having to water. Um, but, yeah, of, of course it is. And, um, you know, all, all we want is for the horses to be, mm. to be sound the following day, the following week, you know, the whole season. But... Unfortunately, as, as with football players, as with rugby players, you will get some injuries along the way. And, um, but, but we do everything in, on our utmost to, to avoid those. 
Well, there were many things that were expected yesterday, four winners for Nicky Henderson, victory for Altior. Perhaps we didn't quite expect this, which was surname completely freaking out in what appeared to be quite a, handy, uh, a competitive handicap. And he, he won it by 21 lengths. This was utterly remarkable, Venetia. You don't often see this. I think that was hugely impressive, exactly. Because, I mean, he's turned around the form um, with uh, the two horses that finished mm. behind, um, in front of him at um, Carlisle in, in the intermediate race. Um, no, it was, it was fantastic. But as, as you quite rightly said yourself but earlier, um, they, they took the hood off. Um, and and uh, maybe maybe that's had some contribution, but it was a fantastic performance. Now, uh, James Willoughby can't be with us this week, uh, but our resident data analyst, <laughs> when I informed him of surname's 21-length success, sparked into life and said, ah, this is because of the hood coming off, and has produced these statistics about what happens when a hood is taken off. Horses with a hood off, 20 of their... 543 races, a staggering 136 did not finish. Uh, on today's start with the hood removed, that should, should say the hood going on, the, the first caption. On today's start with the hood removed, the horses won 79 of their 543 races, four times the strike rate with the hood on. So that's a, a misprint at the top there. With the hood removed, 79 of their 543. That is quite extraordinary. Their exchange prices add up to only 67 wins. So the wins above the expectation that their betting exchange or Betfair SPs predicted is plus 12, which represents a win rate 1.18 times higher and a generated return on investment of 114%. So boil that down, hood off, get stuck in, Lee. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the sort of thing as well. Oh, no, there's more. Yes, pertaining to Paul Nichols. Uh, 32 of the 543 horses were trained by Paul Nichols. Only two had won on their previous start. And then they went 13 for 32, a 40% strike rate, not including surname. It's now 14 from 33. Willoughby describes this as absolutely staggering. The strike rate increased by more than six times when the hood came off. No, I, 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 I'm not best placed to discuss the, the reasons why this would happen. Benicia and Amy would be. But I think what is interesting is that I think as punters... We often take notice when headgear is applied, yeah. Yeah, but we don't even often notice or take much relevance, take much interest when it comes off. And in America, if you wear blinkers and then they come off, it's in the programme, blinkers off. Right. Whereas here, headgear comes off, nobody notices. Mm. So you're probably getting another few points on the price. <laughs> but why, why might that be, do you think? Because there's obviously some basis in fact here, isn't there? Well, one assumes that the horse is very keen at home, which is mm. probably why he had probably why he had them on in the first place um and, and maybe you know now he's been in training for a while and he's been had a lot more racing you know they're probably thinking well look let, let's take take the hood off you know is probably settling him too much mm. um and whoa <laughs> <laughs> but will it work again the man to ask is harry derham assistant trainer to paul nichols who joined us on the line now morning harry morning nick uh, we were, i don't know if you were you were listening to us there we were just talking about the the effects of the hood coming off particularly on your horses who return a, an in, insane strike rate and you heard sort of venetia's logic behind it is that would you identify with that yeah i must admit halfway around i was ruining the decision of taking the hood off <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking god he's doing way too much um but yeah, I, I, I would definitely um, agree with Venetia in the fact that some horses, when they come over um, from France, they, they over-race. Um, so a hood is a good way of trying to just block out the noise and just get them to focus on their jockey and settle. Um, but Scott Marshall, who rides him every day, was actually the one who suggested we might take it off. 
he just said that he he'd become he almost felt a little bit too laid back um and we'd stopped riding him out in, in the hood at home and he was still listening to scott so um yeah we we said we'd we said we'd let him go without the hood but as i say halfway around i was a bit nervous that we probably made the wrong decision i mean you've given the the handicap as a head scratcher i mean they could put this horse on any figure they wanted essentially so handicaps are probably out now but he has got a much better record going right-handed so the obvious question is where next i think we will go to the ascot chase in the middle of february yeah um he's i mean clearly that course and distance suits him extremely well um time scale is i think it's four saturday's time so it it works quite nicely um he's very very good right-handed um so that looks the logical next step and could you run other horses in that would politologue be a possible for that i would imagine politologue will, will go there as well yeah i mean he won course and distance there in november um so i would imagine he will he will line up as well now harry i know uh, I, is paul still away or is he back now he's back uh, early tomorrow morning yeah and- how much? How much of a kick does it give you to fire in a few winners while he's uh, while he's out of the country? Does it give you some bragging rights? Um, not even bragging rights. It's just to to have a, a big winner like that to to the whole team means an awful lot, you know. Because um, obviously we're all trying as hard as we can all the time, and and when Paul's away, it's very important that we uphold the standard that he sets when he's here. Um, and to have a big winner like that, particularly for. Uh, the Delahaye family at Ascot, who are you know massive supporters of ours, um, and that's their kind of local track. To have a big winner like surname yesterday was you know very special for everyone. A big weekend next weekend, Trials Day at, uh, at Cheltenham. How heavily represented do you think you're going to be? Obviously, Frodon we know is going to go for the, the Cotswold Chase. Yeah, Frodon will go there. Um, I suppose it rather depends on on um, ground and how much rain we have for for the other races. We've still got. Um, plenty in the sky but as well at Doncaster so I'd imagine we'll have um, plenty of runners but as I say it kind of rather depends on um, you know the grain for, for different horses really Who'd be the big hope for the sky bet at this stage? Uh, I suppose Art Moresque who, who, who generally really enjoys nice ground um, would be a horse of um, interest you know Doncaster's been on the quick side this season um, and we We've tended to train him for big races, and, and every time he's got to one of those big races, it's it's rained, which has been frustrating. But he he loves really good ground and goes well fresh. Yeah. So if if the forecast kind of stays dry, I, I'd like to think he'll run a really good race. Uh, Harry, thanks so much. Um, well done yesterday. It was an absolutely barnstorming performance, and I know it gave you a huge amount of satisfaction. Good luck next week. Thank you very much, Nick. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Coming up, Debbie Kapitis, lucky enough to part own Winks, heroine of 33 career victories and 29 consecutive, joins us in the studio. You know, we talk about Altior, 29 races on the trot for Winks, and Again, you sort of take it for granted. You're very pleased there's a lot of winks on this programme today, aren't I've you? Got, I've, got my, I've got my winks cufflinks on as well. I, I <laughs> winked up. I do. I mean, I, I, I think it's... I, I find it quite endearing in myself that although I'm a racing journalist, I'm a racing fan at heart. Yeah. Uh, and I made two busman's holiday trips, the last two Cox Plates, just to see primarily winks racing in the Cox Plate. I just think there's a fantastic sense of theatre 
about as well. You know, and if, if theatre's my love, I think she has that sense of theatre about it. Mm. Now, you watch some of her early big wins, and they have this, 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 this chassis style of coming from way off the pace. You think she can't possibly do it, and then she does it. And we'll discuss it when, when the guys are in. But honestly, the, her, sense, her, her level of celebrity over there is something that cannot be imagined over here. The only thing I've seen that's anything like it was in the States for Zenyatta's Breeders' yeah. Cups. And so you'll have been there, you'll have seen what that was like, and it was sort of people holding Zenyatta banners, Zenyatta flags, and there was a huge passion for Zenyatta. Um, and this is the same, but on another level, really is on another level. You know, the day after she won the Cox Plate, the, the, uh, the Herald Sun, the, the big mass-selling newspaper there, I think had 42 pages devoted to winks. Hmm. Including the front page, a pull-out. The following week, they uh, sold a souvenir winks magazine. There was a winks book out at the time. She really is a star over there. And I think, as I've said before, I think, on this programme, if you're a racing fan, when you see that much collective passion and enthusiasm for horse, it just makes you even more of a racing fan and makes you love the sport. You know, walking to the streets of Melbourne last year on the morning of the Cox Plate... I heard people walking past me talking about horse racing and talking about the Cox Plate, which you wouldn't get really in any city mm-hmm. anywhere about a horse race or a horse. And I think it really does um, give you a shot in the arm if you're a racing fan. One of the big Australian newspapers just released a list of 50 great Australian female athletes, and I was amazed that she wasn't in the list. They hadn't thought outside the box. No. Should have been. You've worked in Australia. You worked for, for Gay Waterhouse for mm. a while. I mean, if a horse really does take off there, then it, it can sort of transcend the, the sport quite significantly, can't it? Very much so. You know, it's the same as the Melbourne Cup. You know, it stops the nation for the day. Um, the, the whole nation just fall in love with, with, with that particular horse and that's obviously happened with Winx and she's just phenomenal to watch you know she obviously has an unbelievable attitude um, she just travels around and then turbo kicks in and, and off she goes and it just looks effortless whenever, whenever she turns into any home straight and, and, and uh, they, they kick on with her it just you know it looks like she's in second gear. And will she will she on Wednesday be crowned the world's best racehorse at the a glittering ceremony in, in London. It will be interesting. I mean, I think that there's, there's a very strong argument to say that if she is retired, having never been the world's best racehorse, it will seem something of a travesty. Because what you have to say is that we go into these awards next week with, um, with ratings already there, in the sense that Winks, when last assessed at the end of the year, was on 130, mm-hmm. the same rating as Cracksman, Cracksman, who was on 130. So unless the handicappers, when they met in Hong Kong in December found a reason to change those ratings, they're both going to be on 130. Unless they decided that one should go up to 131, one should go down to 129, they're both on the 130. So that's the starting position. And I, I, I would be satisfied if the starting position was the finishing position. What I would say is I think as a handicapper, you look at both their, their, their big performances. With, with Winks and the figures, it was the Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Randwick. With Cracksman, it was the uh, Champions League at Ascot. You can raise question marks about both pieces of form. With, with Cracksman, mm. um, he got to uh, a figure with handicaps having to really devalue yeah. Crystal Ocean's performance. Yes. And you had the Czech Raider in third, and they still have him at 130. With Winks, it's all about how you rate Galo, Chop the second, and how good a horse you see. Very difficult to rate these races, particularly with, with a horse like Winks, who only ever just does enough because she only has to and her style of racing means that she's not set off in front doing a Frankel 2000 Guineas type performance. Um, 
It's going to be interesting. It is. I mean, if she doesn't get it, there's going to be oh. <laughs> there's going to be one hell of a storm. You can <laughs> you can say that. How do you transition from Winks to Wakanda? <laughs> they don't have an awful lot in common apart from the first uh, letter of their name. Wakanda was the winner of the Peter Marsh chase at Haydock Park yesterday, and. Uh, is trained by Sue Smith, who is winning this race for the fourth time. She does incredibly well at Haydock. She does incredibly well with staying chasers of this ilk, and it was a, a thoroughly worthy performance. Um, do you have anything to add, Amy? Well, I think you know Sue's horse is obviously in fantastic form, and you know they always jump and they stay well, and that's exactly what's happened here. Um, you know, impressive performance and, and a horse to take going forward. Yeah, he's a pretty exposed chaser who'd come down the waist a little bit and run decent races at Doncaster last time, but he wins nice races in his turn. Yeah, I think that's the thing. He is an exposed chaser in, in inverted commas, but the fact is he keeps turning up in these major handicaps and he wins a lot of them. You know, he's won a Sky Bet, uh, he's won a Silver Cup, he's won Peter Marsh, he's won a rehearsal chase. I mean, these are hard haul, the hard races. It's a good to haul, win. actually. Isn't yeah, it, it really is. Haul. It really is a good haul. Um, when you think that whenever you win one of these, you're going up the weights, you've got a fantastic attitude. Listen, the, the, the Peter Marsh isn't the race it was. I remember when I was growing up... You're going to say Rhinus and Twin Oaks, aren't Yeah, you? well, Haydock was my local track growing up. Um, so I'd go there most winter Saturdays. Um, and the Peter Marsh in those days was a proper Gold Cup trial. And that day, Peter Marsh, it was a fantastic day because you had the Champion Hurdle trials you do now. Yeah. You had a race called the Premier Long Distance Hurdle, which was a proper trial for the stay so it was a fantastic day to go racing since then the Peter Marsh has regressed slightly in the sense that it doesn't really attract Gold Cup horses anymore it's, it's much more of a race in itself which, which perhaps partly reflects the situation with, with Northern Jumping and also partly reflects I think the fact that for whatever reason and I always find this very interesting some races go in and out of fashion they have, they have periods of, of pomp and periods when they just regress Slightly, you know, races like the uh, the Jeffrey Freer Stakes. You know, again, when I was growing up, it was a really good race, race. of Jeffrey. Yeah. yeah, Jeffrey Freer. Now it's a bit of a forgotten Group Three. And I think to an extent, the Peter Marsh has gone through a period like that, and also Haydock's Grand National Trial. I think has gone through a period like that when it's not really the race it, it once was. To an extent, that there's, there are prize money reasons. To an extent, you can say there are alternative options, but the Peter Marsh is still a very strong, solid handicap. Uh, and for Wakanda to come out and win it, having already won so many of these other big handicaps, is tremendously to his credit. Let's just have a very quick look back at the, at the champion hurdle trial yesterday. Global Citizen was the winner. Ben Pauling said after the race he thought 33-1 to 1 was madness for the champion hurdle. He felt that he'd got the horse back after being well beaten in the Christmas hurdle. I thought it was the middle part of the race, Amy, that was the most impressive. In the end, he's had to work quite hard to win. But he's, he's looked in a completely different league to Silver Streak and Western Rider for most of the race. Definitely. I think, um, you know, I think he's a great each-way bet for the champion hurdle. He, he travels very strongly. He's got a really high cruising speed and, and he, he jumps well. And, you know, you look, you look at him there, he's just, you know, he's travelling down and like it's effortless. And, and he's, you know, his new performance um, obviously was impressive as well so I think you know he's very gutsy and, and, and when, it, when he has to you know fight it out he certainly does yeah he's he's pretty talented this horse isn't he it's a good horse yeah I mean if you if you can put to one side his Kempton performance um, which while I'm not saying he, he's he's the Bouverdaire class or even maybe Madonna Blue class yet he's he's better than he showed that day 
He's a good, solid horse. I, and I, I take um, Ben's point about 33 to 1 perhaps being man's. I think maybe as an each way bet. I couldn't see him beating a Bouvedere or Lorena. But when you look down the champion hurdle betting, there's not an awful lot of strength in depth no. in that race. When you take out the, sort of the, the big two, they're all pretty much much of a muchness. And I wouldn't be certain how big a field we're going to get. Be good to get in a the big champion. Field, wouldn't it? It be would good be. If people had a go. But I think that there's an awful lot of horses in there who are sort of global, global, global like in that they you can see them getting a place, but probably not much more. So in that sense, 33 to one now, it probably is a fair each way price. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Well, we may be right in the middle of the jump season here in Great Britain, but international racing has always been an integral part of what we try and do on this programme. And the days are getting a little longer and our thoughts will turn to the best international racing very shortly. And indeed, on Wednesday this week at Claridge's in London, there will be a glittering ceremony to crown the world's best racehorse and the world's best race. It is a, a ceremony sponsored by Longines. It's one that's going from strength to strength. And to that end, I'm delighted to be joined in the Luck on Sunday studio, not only by Debbie Kapitis, co-owner of the Mighty Winx, who's been a great friend of the show and has, has phoned in many times after uh, a whole slew of Winx's uh, the 33 victories, but also Jim Galliano, who is the uh, uh, president and chief operating officer of the Jockey club in the United States and is also the vice chairman of the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities. Welcome to you both oh. and thank you very much for coming in. It's great to have a sort of international flavour to the programme in, in, in midwinter and, and to get the sort of exotic flavour of Winks into the studio. Debbie, thanks for coming in. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's, it's wonderful um, how our beautiful mare is received everywhere. And she really has not only transcended her own country, but, but transcended the sport in general. It, it must give you so much pleasure and satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's just phenomenal what she's doing. You know, she's, she loves racing, enjoys what she's doing, and does it at such a level. But people follow her. People have taken it to their hearts. And that's wonderful for us as the owners. Peter and Richard and I, we're the fortunate ones that lucked out in 2013 when we purchased her at Magic Million Sales. But um, she's brought everyone else along for this wonderful magic carpet ride. Just take me back to those Magic Million Sales and just tell us how it, <laughs> how it all started and who, who picked her and why. Um, well, we do the sales similar every year. Yeah. So the routine is the same. We've only bought one Winx, but the routine's the same. Uh, Guy Mulcaster, who does all our bloodstock work, and for Chris Waller as well as myself, um, he does a list for me and he coordinate talks to Peter and works with Peter, and Richard left it up to us. So we got together before the sale and we'd come up with, OK, we want to race together. Um, Peter and I had been racing horses together and, and Richard um, said, oh, look, I want to do that. I'd only like to race with a few people, so can we get together? So we thought, yep, set a budget. It was only a low budget, which we had to increase about three different times. <laughs> Um, and so we do our due diligence, look at the horses. I won't buy anything I don't like the look of. I don't know what I'm looking at, but I have to like <laughs> no. the horse. So it has to have a pretty head. It has to have not too many white socks. When I walk up to, to the yearling, it has to look at me and it has to have a kind eye. Um, she's got a beautiful eye. Uh, so, But we had five on our list. And 
I'm uh, quite a superstitious person, so I don't go in thinking I have to have this one horse. So we had five on the list and we started. Um, Peter, we crossed over. So I did my list and I had about 20. Peter had gotten his together and we crossed over on about five. That would have been roughly the distances. You know, you just want a varied racing. And, um, and we wanted a filly. That was the criteria. It had to be a filly and, and varied racing. And so we crossed over and we missed out on the first cup, one, two, maybe three. Can't really remember because I tend to forget what I don't get. And um, she came into the ring and we'd revised our budget and we thought if we don't get this one, you know, we've only got a couple more left. They could go even higher. One was a colt and that was going to go a lot higher. So um, we went hard and we got to two, I think we got 210, went to 200 and we went 210. Someone came back 220, but not quickly. And Peter's looking around and I said, go for it. And he's looking around, umming and ahhing. And he looked at Chris and, and, and Guy and they said, no, no, we liked her. So he did another bid and we got her. So we celebrate that. And um, who was to know? We would, would end up with the most amazing mare that I've ever seen race. Jim, we, we talk a lot on this program, and, and, and I know you talk a lot in the United States, about how you make racing appeal to more people, to broaden the audience, to bring younger people into the sport. There's nothing like the power of a great racehorse to oh, do that. No, It's just not. quite extraordinary. Her impact has been felt all around the world. Oh, well, I had a chance to watch the 60 Minutes piece, uh, I guess from two seasons ago. Yeah. Just fabulous. The energy, the, the, the enthusiasm for this mare is amazing. We're hoping this is uh, third time's a charm, too. <laughs> And this is it, of course, because on, on Wednesday, the world's best racehorse will be crowned. There's always debate, I wouldn't call it controversy, but there's always debate about what Winx has, has achieved in, in Australia relative to performances around the world. Do you think there's an acceptance now that this is her time to take this crown? Um, look, I think along the way she's earned herself. And we've shown, I think Australian racing has shown to the world that we are a good racing jurisdiction and that we have good racehorses. And yes, there's always a lot of controversy about who, why should she be rated more? She hasn't beaten horses rated highly. Um, but you can only beat what you race. And we do have tough competition there. Mm. And she has done some amazing, um, got through amazing mishaps in races and still got there. Now, I think that's something that you can't put into a rating mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that you have to have when you're doing the world's best horse you have to have a criteria and you have to have rules set in place so that is easy to do on a numbers but when you get the heart back factor when you get the she got knocked over she misses start by four lengths she got blocked out for a run and and then she storms past them just because she doesn't win by eight lengths, her rating doesn't go up. But that doesn't mean that she has done amazing sectionals to win. Yeah. Amazing sectionals, they're hard to put into a rating. So to me, she's proven that she is the best horse in the world at this present moment. And her rating will also be always affected by the fact that she's a mare. So her, her allowance, her weight allowance is, is, is going to affect her, her global rating. Yes, but then you would have people argue that, well, she gets a lighter weight because the, she is a mare. And the mare's allowance is too yes, much. Yes, yes. But 
really, that's the rules you have. That's the rules we follow. Um, but she's the best. She's, <laughs> she's, been, she's been wonderful for you. She's been wonderful for the whole sport. Uh, Jim, in terms of, of globalising the sport, and this is something that you're attempting to do in your, in your role with the, the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, how important is a, a ceremony like Wednesdays and how, how important is she to it? Well, you said it. It's critical. Uh, having having this, um, this award, which began in 2013, with an international brand like Longines has been terrific. But if you go back and look at who's you know, the winners, who's actually been in the placings each year, we've been uh, all corners of the world have been represented. Mm. Um, it's Australia's time, perhaps this year. Um, but black caviar at one point. We've had uh, horses from France, from England, from the United States, all placed very, very highly. So I think it speaks to the awards that it is truly an international event and something we look forward to every year. Do you detect in the United States that the, the race fans there are taking more of an interest in, in international racing? Oh, no question. Uh, you know yourself from some of the coverage that we now have in America that comes from, from England, and uh, we have live coverage from Dubai. We've had uh, the interest, the international interest in horse racing is only only getting greater, and we're happy to see the Americans taking a big part in it. And do you think that that's something that can be of great financial benefit to the to the to the sports domestically? Is that something that can parlay into actual success for American racing in and of itself? Yes, I mean Breeders' Cup in and of itself is an international competition that we. We embrace every year. It's great for our fans, and it's great for our owners to, uh, to campaign their horses overseas. And in terms of um, you know, regulation around the world, I know this is something that, that you're particularly hot on. It's a, a subject that you've been talking about for several years. Are you confident that there can be more harmony in terms of rules and regulations through the various racing jurisdictions than there has been hitherto? Sure. The IFHA has been around for decades, and, and its principal role is to, to establish best practices for countries to meet. And I think we've made great progress. You know, in the United States, we've got some, some more work to do. But if you look at on the whole, we've been using international regulations as the yardstick and improving them every year. Uh, there's been so much debate here recently, and I'm sure you've been following it, Debbie, and I know you will have been, Jim, about the use of the whip. And it came up again at Breeders' Cup with, with Christoph Sumio. Uh, no. I'd ask you first, Debbie, what's the position in Australia as regards to, to, to whip use? There's a lot, we have stringent rules, um, and we have different whips now. So um, they've been tested, and, they, and they're not affecting the horse. It's more an urger than mm -hmm. actual... In, inflicting pain mm -hmm. which I think is important and that's made a big difference but you can only hit the horse so many times in the races and um, look it was a hard they were hard rules to to get used to um, but I think it's been for the good of racing and what we use now is really I think is is purposeful you're not over it's not to flog a horse to get it to win. Mm. It's to encourage a horse. It's certain horses need to be reminded they're in a race. So it, it's it's not used as a flogging stick, which it wasn't really used like that, but it was used more for that to get every ounce of, of work out of the horse earlier. Um, and I, I think what we, the, the um, system that's in Australia now is a good system. Yes, at times it gets... Uh, they, the jockeys hit them too many times in certain yeah. places. But the, the times that's happening is a lot less. And in big competition, it's really looked at. And, and, and there's not been a lot of infringements lately. There were a few in the Melbourne Carnival, but not huge ones. And um, 
Look, I think it's important to, to look at those factors. I think we need a good, clean sport and we need everybody on a level playing field. And so I, I'm all for having rules in place. And here in, in Britain, the argument is to push one step further and to do without it because we're being looked upon by society as an outlier if we're, if, if we're still seeing jockeys holding whips. Do you think there'll be societal pressure in North America to, to reduce whip use? I think there is. I think there is now uh, evolving points of view on this. Uh, I've been in the sport for 30 years, and in that time, we've evolved in a lot of ways. And I think in this is one particular case that we're going to have to take a good hard look and decide what's the, the, the proper regulation for this. In the States, we have 38 different um, jurisdictions that have different rules. Uh, some have been more progressive in this area. Some have not not stepped up. Uh, but I think we'll look internationally and, and we'll see what works best and we'll do our best to, to model it. But without question, this is a societal issue that we're, we're going to have to confront. How hard is it for you to persuade people in New York, to agree with people in Kentucky, to agree with people in California and everywhere else. How much of a challenge for you is that on a oh, daily basis? It's a basis? huge challenge. It's probably an impossible challenge, the way that we're structured right now. Uh, one of the things that, that my organization and with some others has been promoting is a, a federal solution mm. uh, that would allow um, uh, all of these disparate uh, racing commissions to put their rules under one, uh, one body. Uh, and we're working hard on that. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.